0: It's good to be together in corporate worship. We had a great time in Sunday school today, sharing together. I know so many of you are involved. I want to invite those of you who may not yet be to come and to join us for Bible study at 9 a.m. What a wonderful gathering before Sunday school today in a sort of a department meeting. And Jan Mount shared with us some great encouragement about being a good giving church member. And then we got to share together in the Lord's Word from Exodus and 1 Corinthians today about Christ, who is the rock that gives forth the living water. So it was a wonderful time together today. If you'll join me in the book of 1 Peter, we want to review where we've come to because everything that we say uh, today to the wives is premised on two particular sermons that we've already done. So I want to walk through those, reminding you that the whole purpose of what we've been talking about is shining our behavior, communicating something about God and his goodness and his power to change us through everything we do in life. And especially we've been focusing for four weeks. This is the fifth week on the issue of marriage and how marriage actually pictures the gospel. So let's walk through those things together. Peggy, walk with me through those. Let's go a couple of slides forward how to start a biblical marriage, we laid three things out there on the front of your outline. We learned that marriage is a legal covenant between a man and woman for life. And we heard what a covenant is. How God demonstrated covenant by this cutting of animals and separating them and them. Him uh, sort of um, metaphorically passing through, symbolically passing through those in the covenant that He had with Abraham, stating to Abraham, I will... Give myself up to and including my own death to honor this covenant. And then we saw how Jesus exemplified that by saying this cup is the new covenant. This was the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. God was honoring the promise he made to Abraham up to and including his own death in order to bring about a people for his own possession. And then we learn that marriage is a loving union between a man and a woman where two lives are one woven into one and we saw how it's like fabric that runs one direction and the other and they're mutually and alternately covering and supporting each other. We also learned that marriage is a living portrait of Christ in the church. And we had an illustration that gave us a picture of Jesus and we found out that that picture is made up of a collage and we kind of zoomed in on the eye and it's a collage of all of these different people. And we talked about how marriage preaches the gospel through thousands and hundreds of thousands, if not maybe even millions of actions day by day that weave together to tell about Christ and his love for the church, the church and her union with Christ. And then we walked into three more things about how God empowers this marriage. First, we saw that Paul assumed a miraculous power in his teaching on marriage, and we saw When he introduced marriage in the book of Ephesians, he first told them to be filled with the Spirit. And we saw through a sailing ship that one of the ways that the word filled with the Spirit was understood and interpreted was a power from the wind that propelled a ship to go against the current, against the flow, Against inertia to go where it could not go in its own power and that the power to do the whole thing called marriage in the biblical way is a divine power. It's a supernatural power. It's a power that we do not possess on our own, but we must yield to the power of God's Holy Spirit. We went further to say that Paul asserted a mutual posture in his teaching on marriage. And that posture looked like this. And that was a humble, contrite, broken person who comes to God as a begging sinner. And We saw that that was exemplified in the very first of the Beatitudes where the Scripture told us through the words of Jesus, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And that poor in spirit was a poverty where we have nothing to offer God. We come empty handed only as beggars. And he puts into our hand through faith in Christ, eternal life and divine power to live for him. And then we finalize that Paul anticipated a mutual pursuit in his teaching on marriage, that he anticipated that a couple would work together on something. And that togetherness was sanctification, that the husband would be adorning his wife, that he would be, um, working with his wife, washing her with the water of the word. And we got a picture of how that doesn't work in a picture of a husband and a wife where she's in her bridal dress and he has dirty hands. And actually, his contact with her does not beautify. It does not magnify, but it actually insults and it actually soils her. And we talked about how guys have a responsibility to come to their wives with clean hands and a pure heart. Working toward the wife's sanctification. We also learned that the wife must not be rebellious in that. And we had a picture of a wife in a wedding dress there sitting in a mud puddle where she must not come to sanctification rebelliously, just soiling herself in the sin of the world, but that she should come wanting to be made ready for the day when we meet Jesus and are accountable to God. And so when we followed that, we talked last week with husbands. We gave them a very strong and very serious charge about ultimately exemplifying Jesus by loving their wives as Christ loved the church and giving themselves up for her. And that giving themselves up was a picture of Jesus on the cross. It was sacrifice. It was ultimate sacrifice that that's how the husband is to operate. And we had some specific instructions. And now we're going to dive into. The instruction to the wives in marriage. And so as we turn to 1 Peter, I want to kind of give you a front side of this message that I think is important. When we come to the texts in the Bible on wives and submission, we cannot come honestly to those texts without first admitting that through the ages, these texts have sometimes And by some persons, been abused. My first encounter with this kind of thought was in seminary where a couple that was also in seminary uh, came to myself and my pastor when I was serving as the associate pastor of Elysian Fields Avenue Baptist Church. And this man came to us and basically in front of his wife in a very embarrassing way said, the problem here is my woman won't submit. I'd never been exposed to that kind of thinking before. And I'd never been exposed to such an embarrassing way of putting it. And I'd never been exposed to a man so unwilling to fulfill what Christ called him to do while demanding or commanding that his wife do what Christ commanded her to do. And so there was an awakening in my eyes that even within the church, and even within people preparing for gospel ministry in seminary, there is confusion about the application of texts like the submission text in Ephesians 5 and in 1 Peter chapter 3. And so we have to come to it with a real honesty that there have been and still are abuses of this text by unrighteous and ungodly men who misuse it. I've hidden wives in my own home whose husbands were out to harm them. I've hidden women whose husbands were out to harm them in churches under playground structures to keep the husband from getting to them while we got police help. I've seen it. And so I come to you very sensitively as a man speaking to women and to men that it's very easy to misuse the Scriptures. And we have to be honest about that. And so I want to come to you humbly and carefully, but I also want to say that none of those events of any misuse or abuse of any scripture anywhere any time ever negate the clear teaching of God's word a few years ago after having covered these texts in our own church here, I received a very can I say the word nasty? I received a very nasty letter from a lady who who believed that I was encouraging her to be abused by her husband and She called me an abuser also that I was empowering him. And so I want to say to everybody really clearly that if you take anything that I say today as permission for men to abuse women, then you don't know me and you did not listen to the text. So I want to make sure that's clear. That's why we have a criminal justice system and a thing called jail. And I believe if a woman is physically abused by a man, that she ought to call the police and he ought to go to jail. And that there should not be her putting herself into a situation of danger. There should be a labor toward reconciliation. I've actually been appointed by the court before as a counselor for situations like that. And thank God, been able to work with husbands who have been guilty of this, of this and bring them. I'm so nervous that I'm forgetting to swallow. Okay? Are y'all okay with that? <laughs> so if I sound like I'm choking on my own spit, I am. Alright. Um. And so, uh, there's this, this understanding that we have to come to that the that, that Scripture never calls us to permit abuse. And that domestic violence is a, a, a grave sin and requires... Criminal justice system in interaction. And then great, serious help if there's going to be restoration. Um, And so I I introduce everything that I'm saying with that so that you don't see this through the lens maybe of something you've experienced and you think, well, Bart's one of those. Um, I'm not. So let's, let's dive into the text and let's do it carefully and let me walk through what's happening. We're going to begin, number one, with some lessons from Peter. And and number one, in his teaching to wives, Peter gives an introduction that assumes hardship. He gives an introduction that assumes hardship. That's why I had Will read a lot of Scripture before he got to today's text, because there is a setting that this Scripture is in that assumes hardship. It, It essentially says... If you're going to be married, it's going to be hard, and especially it's going to be hard if you're a wife. There's going to be a kind of hardship that is actually going to be described in the context of hardship and suffering. There is no way for you as a wife to be united to a fallen man, whether he's redeemed or whether he's not, and not be wounded in the process. Relationships tend to have within them that the people that you are closest to are the most apt to wound you. I thank God that after almost 29 years of marriage, my wife has chosen 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where it says, love keeps no record of wrongs suffered. If Sherry had kept a record on my idiocy, she could justify herself in your sight in departing from me. And so I want to stand before you very honest Marriage is hard, and Peter puts it in a hard context. He puts it in a context that's literally surrounded with one particular word, and that word is suffering. And so he contextualizes it, sort of. If you could think of concentric circles, you've got this outer circle, another circle, another circle, and then a centerpiece. That's how he gets to marriage. The outer circle starts in verse 13. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. That means whether it's the king or the government or the local government or the police force, you submit yourself to that. And that will sometimes bring suffering in your life. Now, Let me be clear. Nowhere does Paul or Peter or Jesus ever command that in our submission that we violate any of God's commands. We have clear pictures all through the Old Testament. You've got the whole Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego bend down to this thing or the the king will have you thrown in the fiery furnace. They said, look, we're all about being good stewards, but that's not happening. Daniel in the lion's den, when Daniel was told you can't pray to anybody but the king for this period of time, Daniel three times a day did exactly what he had been doing. So the submission to authority is never to be contextualized as an ability to break any of God's commands in order to obey the authority. That is a setting that flows through the whole text of chapters two and three. So make sure that when we get into this, husbands, you can't come back later and say, yeah, woman, you're supposed to submit and you're asking her to do something sinful. And you're out in two ways. First, that the way you handled it. And second, that you would ask her to break any of God's commands. You, you don't get that from these texts. So there's outer circle. Then there's this next circle. The next circle is servants be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable for this finds grace. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And so herein is a wicked emperor over Rome, a wicked master over a slave. Both of those would cause unjust suffering. Both of those would be painful experiences. And then you have another center circle that's almost at the very center, but he breaks in the middle of it and says, now wait a minute. While I'm commanding you to be subject to these authorities, to be subject to the Master, I want you to look at Jesus. So what does He do? He throws Jesus right into the mix in verse 21 of chapter 2. For you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? The purpose of suffering. Oh. So, so wives, as we contextualize the teaching to wives, I want you to look at a particular word in verse 1 of chapter 3. depends on what translation you're using, but it either says likewise or in the same manner or in the same way. This is a very important point. These three circles that Peter has drawn. Suffering under an emperor who is unjust. Suffering under a master who is unjust. Jesus suffering unjustly. And then it says, likewise. Like who? Like Jesus, like the servant, and like the citizen. He's going to say to the wives... In the same way as a good citizen will suffer a degree of injustice under a vain emperor. In the same way as a servant will suffer injustice under a bad master. In the same way that Jesus suffered unjustly in how he was treated. You wives, intermarriage knowing... That there are going to be times when the way that your husband acts will cause you to feel an injustice and a pain that is closer than anyone else can ever get to you. No one else can do it. And it's going to hurt, it's going to be painful, it's going to bring tears and sorrow, and anguish. Marriage is going to be hard. And so, in Peter's introduction, he makes very clear that there's a context that assumes hardship. That marriage is going to be tough. So let's step into the next part. In his teaching to wives, Peter lays out specific instruction to wives about relating to their husbands. He gives some specific instruction. He says, here it is. just lays it out. And he starts with the word that we hate to hear most. In the same way, you wives, be submissive. Ouch! That's not even a word we want... I, I, it, <laughs> I, and I don't encourage this if you're like under 18. But, but if, you just, if you will just type in the word submission and do a Google search of images, make sure you have safe search on. Hello? You know what safe search is. Make sure you have safe search on. But type in and the word submission and watch the images that come up. There is not a positive image for thousands of images. Because in our culture today, the idea of submission is as ugly of an idea as you can imagine. But here, he uses a word that was applied to Jesus in Luke 2.51. It said that Jesus lived in submission to His parents. So when we talk about submission, we're not talking about value or quality. We're not saying that the lesser is submitted to the greater. That is not what is being said. Because Jesus was far greater. He made his mommy and dad. But he lived in God's order. That's what submission means. To live humbly and joyfully in God's order. Jesus submitted himself to his parents. They had a role. And He had a role, and He respected that role and lived in submission to them. It's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, of Jesus' submission to God the Father. Well, if you know the doctrine of the Trinity, you know that the doctrine of the Trinity teaches us That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, co-existing from all of and into all of eternity. So there's not an issue of equality or quality or value between them, but that God set an order that God the Father would have the Son in submission to Him as His order. And the Son joyfully agreed. And he lived in that under the Father. And so when we talk about submission, living in God's order, we're talking about not an issue of quality or value, but an issue of how God has chosen to order things. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And that is God's order. After he says submission, I want you to notice that he says to your own husbands. This is not that all women are supposed to be submitted to all men. I've seen guys try to do that. That doesn't work either. Like in a bad way. I've seen friends of mine who thought that all women should be subject to them because they were men. It doesn't work like that. It says, wives be in subjection, submission to your own husbands as unto the Lord. So that even if any of them are disobedient. In other words, he removes one of the excuses. Wait a minute, I can't be submissive. He's a knucklehead and he doesn't obey God and he doesn't do what God's word says. He says, even if, even if. He's referring here either to a wayward believer or probably more likely to an unbeliever that a woman is married to. And either she erred in marrying an unbeliever, but still formed a covenant and is held by God to that for all the days of her life, or she got saved after marriage, became a believer, and he's not a believer, and so there's this conflict, and he's living not just not obeying, the word is that he is disobeyed. That means he is openly not doing what God says. So He says, I'm, I'm asking you ladies also. And then he says that, This submission is demonstrated in verse 1. he says it's it's demonstrated by behavior. He's going to qualify that. He's going to say it's chaste. That means pure. And it's respectful. That means it's not rebellious. And then he's going to qualify it a little further. Notice what he says in verse 3. And let not your adornment be merely external, Okay, the word adornment is a good word. It means ordering things, that which serves and orders things to beautify through decoration. We we stripped this word actually out of Greek and we brought it over, and if you'll go to if you'll go to any of the big department stores, you'll know that they have a department called cosmetics. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Cosmetics? That's what this word is. It's the arranging of things for beauty. And he's saying there is a tendency that we spend our time, our attention, and our resources on the externals. What are they? Well, braiding the hair. That's time. That's a time-consuming process. Wearing gold jewelry. That's expensive. Putting on dresses. That's that... That putting them on. He's not saying women can't wear dresses, women can't wear gold, and women don't braid their hair. It's not what he's saying. There's entire denominations who kind of take off on this and kind of go crazy with it. No, he's not saying that. He's saying that your time and your expense and your attention need to not be focused on the outside. But notice what he says. But let it be the hidden person of the heart. The place to give As a wife, the highest attention, the highest investment, the highest time is to the cultivation of that which is internal. Because God doesn't look on the outside. Notice what he says. With the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in whose sight? What does he say? In God's sight. When God's looking at you as a wife, He's not checking out your hairdo. He's not looking at your jewelry. And He's not looking at how you're dressed. He's looking down inside your heart. And what Peter is saying is that that's where the intensive labor goes. That's where the time, the money, and the attention should be focused on the development of the heart so, the submission is a behavior that is marked by chasteness, that's purity, respectfulness, that's attitude, and that the adornment is not about the outside, it's about that which God alone sees. That this takes time, it takes cost, and it takes attention. That it's hidden to most people, it exists down there where only God sees, but then it is revealed by two things. What are the two things it's revealed by? A gentle, and the quiet spirit. Now this is interesting because some ladies are born with that naturally. Some ladies just, they, they, they come out of mom's womb and they're gentle and they're quiet. It's just how they are. It's just like, they just got this extra dose of grace from birth. And so for them, this is not a labor. Some are born Different. And, and that, when, when, when they start reading gentle and quiet, they start going, oh, man, because they find that, that often they're not gentle and often they're not quiet. So it's a struggle for them. And so this is one of those things where you have to say, OK, this is God empowered. This is not about your natural abilities. This is about something that God has the power to develop in any anyone but particularly in the wife, A gentle. The word gentle here is the same word that is used in the Sermon on the Mount when it says blessed are the meek or blessed are the gentle. It's the same word there. And then he says in a quiet spirit. And so here he gives some specific instruction. Submission demonstrated by behavior. Practiced by adornment of the heart which means my time, my cost, and my attention are focused there primarily, and that it is revealed in a hidden place that God alone can see the the perfect attitude of, and that it is revealed to my husband in a gentle and a quiet spirit, which, notice what he says, imperishable quality. Verse 4, put your finger there is really important. Imperishable. Imperishable means it's used by Peter to reveal eternal things. Peter uses the word to reveal things that are carried out of this life into the next. That they are treasured in heaven and on earth. In other words, he's saying that, When you develop this, you develop something that God sees as a heavenly quality, as an eternal quality, as something that will dwell in heaven and on earth. And these things are precious in God's sight. So how does Peter help with that? Well, he takes us then to number three, an illustration to give understanding to the wives. Because women begin to process this. If I was on the receiving end of this, I would be wrestling through. And I'm not a woman. I'm not wired like a woman. Okay? I want you all to understand that. So I do not, I do not pretend to have any idea what your experience is like. I do not. But I want to tell you that even as a guy, when I start hearing lessons like this, I start thinking of all the justifications for why I should disobey Peter. I do. I start thinking of it either kind of like on behalf of a wife or kind of on behalf of a guy who might be commanded something like this. And I start thinking of all the reasons, like all the knuckleheaded guys I know. And I think, oh Lord, I've got to tell a wife this? I know this guy. And then I think of my own self. And what a knucklehead I am. And so Peter makes sure that the ladies have something to take home as an illustration. So he does in verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So he's covering everything. Holy, that's the thing that, that, that's been in Peter's teaching all the way. Holy lives, lives that are different. Hope in God, that means and I'm trusting Him to give me the ability to do this. Okay, and, and then it says, Adorning themselves, okay, they're laboring inside their heart with their time, uh, with their, their cost, and with their attention. And then he says, they adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. So then he drops a bomb. Verse 6, thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. <laughs> I can see you eyes now. Calling him what? You gotta be kidding me. Yeah, Lord Bart. <laughs> Come on. It's funny when you're experiencing the hardship of marriage and they drop this bomb on you and say, Yeah, Lord Bart uh-huh. Come on. But but what he, what he does he is masterful by the Spirit. Because you have to go, okay, Sarah Abraham, yeah, man, he was, the, he was the father of faith. This guy's a winner in every way. Of course you'd call Him Lord. It happens in 18.2. Genesis 18.2. Right. Early in the marriage? Sure. No. When everything's peachy and they're coming down the aisle, Lord Abraham, I commit myself to be. No! When does it happen? Have you thought through this illustration? Do you know what this guy did? Well, let's review. 12-1. Strips her from her family and moves and leaves everything she's known, everyone she's known, and hits the road. And she says, where are we going? He says, I don't know. Do what? My mom and my dad, my cousins, and, and, the, and the, where are we going? I don't know. In 12.5, God will show us where. In 12.10 through 15, they get there. (laughs) There's a famine. There's no food. There's nothing to eat. There's no way to provide for their family. They're starving. And so they said, what are we going to do? Abraham says, well, I guess we have to go to Egypt. They head south to Egypt, and he says to her on the way, hey, by the way, (laughs) when we get there, you're really hot. I'm going to tell everybody that you're my sister so they won't kill me. So he gets to Egypt, passes her off as his sister. She gets taken captive and moved into Pharaoh's house, and he's going to make her one of his wives. Could you imagine going through that with your husband? Sherry and I were selling a car one time. This lady came by. And she's kind of trying to play the the poor widow lady thing on us. And there are such things as poor widows. So she knew that because there are, I would be, as a pastor, I'd be real merciful. So she begins to kind of tell her story, and she looks at our van, and We're real compassionate. Give her this really good deal. And so she shows up later with this guy. And she said, yeah, he's my brother. And then a little bit later, she says, he's my husband. But he's like a brother to me. And I thought, something is wrong with this story. There's no widow. You're married to this guy and you're passing him off as your brother. And that's just kind of wicked. Think of Abraham doing this with his wife. Sarah gets taken by Pharaoh's people, moved into his palace. And the only way she's rescued is God smites Pharaoh and his household with a plague. She's there. Abraham's outside. Look at all the stars that I'm going to have kids like. And, and she's in there. And then after this, there's the whole Hagar thing where he's sleeping with her handmaid. Yeah, I know she suggested it, but wives, you know you've suggested things to your husbands you never intended him to do. Am I right? Give me some applause. If that's true, do this. Yeah, because you knew he had better sense than what you were saying. And so, here's Abraham. And after all this... There's been a child born that is an illegitimate heir. There's conflict now between her and Hagar, so much so that Abraham has to intervene and send Hagar and the son away. And this guy is a first-class knucklehead. And after all of that, at the end of this story, the beginning of the story, she calls him Lord. A term of respect and endearment. And she has physical relationship with Him. And they bear a son. And if she had not chosen to endure all of that stupidity, you would not be saved. Whoa, 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 Bart. Don't throw that on me. Listen carefully. Who's born? Who's say it? Isaac! If she would have tubed out, no Isaac! She chose. And so when this illustration is dropped on here, it's not dropped on here casually as a nice story. It's dropped on here to say when she called Him Lord, was in Genesis 18, when the promise had come one more time and she laughed at Abraham and she laughed at God, but she still called Him Lord, a term of endearment and respect. And so there's the illustration. That when you choose to obey God in the ways that you know you're to obey Him, even in difficulty, even when it hurts, even when there's suffering involved, even when it's very costly, even when it is all of those things, that God has something on the other side of that that you cannot today see. You cannot. It's impossible. And so now we close with this little bit at the end. He gives some inspiration that should motivate the wives to be obedient to God's Word. How does he do that? He does it by going back and having introduced this section in verse 9 of chapter 2. So join with me and we're going to just do a panoramic view of the four things and then the fifth that he did here. What are they? One, when wives, when God calls you to endure hardship in your marriage... When God calls you to go through difficult times and to yet be submissive, to have a gentle spirit, a a quiet spirit, when God calls you to these things that are extremely difficult, he wants to inspire you with four truths. And I'll add a fifth as we close first. In verse 9 of chapter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. When you are obeying in difficulty, you're doing the same thing that the, the citizens, the servants, and Christ were doing. You're doing the same thing. You're proclaiming that your God is worthy of your highest affection even when it hurts. That's what you're proclaiming. Second, You're going to win the Gentiles. Look in verse 12 of chapter 2. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God on the day of visitation. What does that mean? It means they got saved because of what you were doing. God intends to save people through your behavior. That's how the gospel is transmitted. First through behavior, then through word. Third... To conform us to the likeness of Jesus. That's the third reason that the ladies are inspired. Because in verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. That means, ladies, that you're not only proclaiming the glories of God, you're not only winning the Gentiles, the unsaved to Christ, but you're becoming just like Jesus because He suffered while He was doing right. And then finally, he gives of motivation, he says, to win your husbands. Look in verse 1 of chapter 3. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word. What's the word one mean? It's the idea of their salvation or their repentance. And so, God is using you, wives, to proclaim how worthy He is. He's using you to evangelize the lost. He's using you to become like Jesus. And He's using you to change your husbands by your behavior. He's doing all that for something even greater. On that moment, when Sarah called Abraham Lord, she made a decision. And that was to follow through with her commitment. And when she made that decision to follow through with her commitment, in spite of all that Abraham had done, God brought fruit beyond her comprehension. Wives, today, you may be in a really tough spot. And you may be here And you may be thinking, I can't do it. As we bow together for just a moment, I want to encourage you. God knows your situation and He loves you. Just like He knew Jesus' situation and He loved Him. But just like Christ had to go through certain things for other things to be accomplished, it appears that that's true about us too though we accomplish the salvation for no one by our deeds, we do accomplish some things that are eternal and irreplaceable. And so wives, I want to just encourage you with the words that are used of Jesus in the end of chapter 2. It's said that while suffering, He did not revile, but He kept entrusting Himself to the one who judges righteously. And so wives, i I got a feeling some of you are in a bad spot right now. And you're hurting. And the hurt that you know is incomprehensible to me. But I want to encourage you today that God knows your pain. He knows your hurt. And He wants to do two things. The first thing He wants to do is heal you. He is the binder of the broken hearts. He is the healer of the wounded. He is the one who sticks closer than a brother. Through Jesus, God wants to heal what you're going through. And second, He wants to use you. He wants to use your difficulty, just like He did Sarah's. So that one day a story will be told about you. One day something will come out of your decision to do what is good and right and hard. And a story will be told. A story like the story of Abraham where somebody makes a decision and they stick to it and something so good comes out of it that it was never expected. In fact, Sarah even laughed about it. And you're snickering in your heart saying, how could God make anything good out of my situation. He is the miracle God. And I'm inviting you today to come in repentance and faith to Him. Would you stand? Would you trust Him? As He moves your heart, maybe coming as a couple to pray together as Sherry and I are about to do. Maybe coming as a single and praying for what's coming ahead in your life may be coming as one who is wounded and asking for help. Would you come as God leads you? Would you come?